Lord Jesus, we do belong to you, and we want to serve others, we want to reach out to others, but Lord, we often don't know how. So we ask that you would please open your word to us this morning, teach us from it, so that we can serve you and know you better, and we'll be grateful people. We pray this in your name, amen. Christina and I have a tradition that whenever one of our kids is weaned, we go celebrate the freedom. <laughs> so after Jackson was weaned, we decided that we would, we'd never, neither one of us had ever been to a five-star restaurant before, so we decided we'd go spend a night in San Francisco and eat at a five-star French restaurant. But it, it ended up not being all that much fun because, you know, was, the food was kind of mediocre and, and the portions were very small. You sort of needed bifocals just to see the food. And, and it was a very fancy atmosphere, which for Eastern Washington boy here was just confusing. I mean, why do they have five forks when you just need one? And I never understood that. And then the bill came. which prompted a long discussion of which one of our kids we were going to sell to pay for it. And when we were all done, Christina said this sort of uncomfortable thing. She said, you know, and I hate it when she starts a conversation with you know, for what we spent tonight, we probably could have fed some kid in the developing world for a year. I was like, ah. And I felt sick. Not because I felt guilty, I didn't feel guilty at all. I, I, there's nothing wrong with celebrating, and contrary to what a lot of people think, there's nothing in Scripture that says it's wrong to have money. It's just that I thought it would have been more fun to feed the kid in the developing world than fuss with five forks. <laughs> and that's something that God has been teaching me lately, that actually serving the poor can be a lot more fun than a lot of things that I think are going to make me happy. Now, if you're like me, some of you just thought, oh, no, he's going to talk about serving the poor. I hate it when preachers talk about that. At least I've always had that response. So if you have that response, it's just fine. Feel released from that guilt. The reason I have that response when preachers talk about serving the poor is I'm afraid of one of two things. I'm afraid that I'm going to end up feeling guilty for being middle class or I'm going to get some radical political agenda shoved at me. Now, I want to reassure you, I'm not going to do either one of those things today. As, yeah, I, don't think, I don't think Jesus makes anyone feel guilty. I don't think he does that. I, I think with Jesus, it is always an invitation into the abundant life. And as for the radical agenda, look at me. I am a middle-aged Presbyterian clergyman. How radical could I be? Not exactly avant-garde. But one of the things I know is that the real Jesus of Scripture has a passion for the poor. And one of the things that has attracted me to this congregation is I know that you share that passion. And that for a long time, you all have been serving the poor in some pretty amazing ways, which, which is kind of unexpected. I mean, a lot of people wouldn't expect that out of a middle-class suburban church. But you guys have been just blown apart that stereotype. I was talking with some high school kids this week, and one of them looked at me and said, Christianity, that's just for a bunch of rich people, isn't it? Just rich white folk or Christians, that's it. And I think that that is a, a common sort of plastic Jesus that's out there, a stereotype that's out there that Christianity is just for middle class folk. But the real Jesus of Scripture isn't like that at all. 
The real Jesus of Scripture has a concern for the poor. In fact, in his first public sermon, where he announces who he is, Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of God's favor. The real Jesus cares deeply about the plight of the poor, and you will find that on virtually every page of Scripture. Now, I think the reason he cares so much is quite simple. He loves them. He loves them. My friend Gary Haugen tells a story of a, a little girl in India named Shama. She's seven years old. And in order to pay some medical bills for her family, Shama has to work in a cigarette factory ten hours a day, six days a week, rolling cigarettes. And if she falls below her quota, she's beaten. And since she's only paid a couple of cents a day, there's no way that she is ever going to be able to pay those medical bills. Now, Jesus loves Shama. In fact, he loves her so much that he died in order that she could be reconciled to God. And it breaks his heart to see this beautiful creation of his made in his image so abused and robbed of her dignity. And so he wants her released from that. And he wants her to know him. And it's that way with all the poor people that we might encounter. The homeless people, the poor people on the east side who don't get the right medicine or education. Jesus wants them to know him and live the grand adventure he designed them to live. Not just suffer in poverty. But there's another reason Jesus calls us to serve the poor. And it's because he loves us. And he wants us to live the most abundant life possible. You know, one of the deepest pains in middle-class life is that sometimes some of us wonder if our lives have any significance. You know, you know the drill. We, we wake up, we go to the office, we come home, we run the kids to soccer, we watch TV, we fall asleep five or six days a week, 50 or so weeks a year, round and round she goes, and where she stops, nobody knows. And in the middle of that, sometimes we end up wondering, does this matter? Do I matter? And that sort of subtly eats at us not like a raging virus maybe, but like a low-grade fever. It just sort of slowly saps our energy and our vision and our hope. And, well, I'm probably depressing you, so I'll stop. But God loves us so much that he wants us to know the joy of seeing him work. And certainly we can see him work in our offices and our neighborhoods and our families. But when we serve the poor, we see God in a whole new way. Partly because the poor remind us of our need for God, but also because poverty can be so dark and so hopeless that if anything good happens there, we know it has to be God. And so when we serve the poor, our faith is increased and we know that God is real. Now, I think all of us know that deep down. All of us know that, but still some of us are reluctant, myself included, myself included, we're reluctant to serve the poor for lots of reasons. I, Partly because it's outside of our comfort zone. That's a big one for me. Sometimes we think it's someone else's responsibility. You know, let the government take care of that. Sometimes we think that some people are poor because of bad decisions they've made. And sometimes that's true. And of course, sometimes it isn't. And even when it is true, so what? Lots of people make bad decisions that lead to all kinds of problems, like, like midlife crises and divorces and loneliness. And we still reach out to them and give them the tools to live new lives, why wouldn't we do that with the poor? 
But you know what I think the biggest reason is that we are reluctant to serve the poor, if we are? It's because we don't know what to do. The need seems so great, and our resources seem so few, and we just feel overwhelmed, and we don't know what to do. Well, let me give you some good news. God is not calling us to solve the poverty problem. God is not calling us to solve the poverty problem. All he is asking is that we bring whatever we can bring to him, whatever it is we have, and trust that the Lord who fed 5,000 people with a bit of bread and fish can bless and multiply whatever we bring to him and use it to help a few hurting people. So let me just give some suggestions of things that we can do, really simple things. On the most basic level, we can donate some food to a food shelter. Or we can volunteer some hours at a Christian soup kitchen. Even if you don't have any money, you can do that one. Or we can just simply give some homeless people some food. I was talking with one of our elders, and she says she just keeps some extra food in her car so that she can hand it to homeless people when they ask. Another thing we can do, we can use our professional expertise to help. As you saw this morning, the people who are going on that mission trip, they're doing that. I have a friend who was an architect, and he was actually kind of frustrated with that because all he ever seemed to do was design strip malls and things. Actually, it wasn't even that interesting. He, he designed the third door from the left that led to the alley behind the strip mall kind of a deal. And he sort of wondered, gosh, am I making a difference in the world? So he started praying, Lord, how can I build your kingdom as an architect? And then he had this idea, and he went to his boss, and he said, I think it'd be good for our firm if we did some pro bono work. And the boss agreed. So he went and found a project to design a mobile AIDS unit to be used in Africa. And then he entered that project into a contest and got great publicity for the firm, and he did some, some good for the poor. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, computer experts, financial people. Almost any profession entails skills that poor people need to help them out of poverty. And when we use our professional skills, our work becomes more meaningful. Another thing we can do Sponsor a child in the developing world. Through Compassion International, a Christian organization, for a dollar a day, that's the price of a cup of coffee, you can feed, clothe, and educate a child in the developing world and introduce them to Jesus. Christine and I sponsor one child for every child that we have. So when Holly was old enough to understand, we sponsored a child in Guatemala. Her name is Astrid. And, and, and Holly writes her letters and, 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 and sends her birthday cards. And Holly even sent her her Winnie the Pooh stickers. And, and Astrid writes us back. And we have pictures of her. And we write her letters and pray for her. And when our other kids are old enough, we'll sponsor a kid for them too. And someday we'll go visit them. And all of that enriches our family's life together. In fact, did you know that according to George Barna's research, Christian kids whose parents are involved in hands-on ministry to the poor are far more likely to remain Christians after they become adults. You know why? Because Jesus isn't just words. Jesus is words made flesh. He's not just talk. Parents are doing something about it. All of that for the price of a cup of coffee a day. What else do you want to do with a buck a day? One last thing we can do. We can work together. We are much more powerful together than we are alone. I used to be part of a Bible study that adopted a poor widow. And each one of us would bring just a little bit of money each week. But together, because we worked together, we were able to buy her, pay for her grocery bills every month. And that was just a kick to see how much power we had collectively. In this church, 
We already have KidReach, which helps poor kids get an education. What if we expanded that? For about $300 per person, we could send every kid in some poor neighborhood to college, some poor neighborhood in Crossroads or in the Central District, and think how that would change a neighborhood if every kid in that neighborhood had a chance to go to college. We already have people in our congregation who are sponsoring kids in Cambodia. What if we chose one village in Cambodia, and if even half of us participated, we could sponsor almost 2,000 kids in that village? Think of how that would change a village. And, and what if we joined with, with Antioch and Westminster Chapel and Overlake and other churches? We could probably sponsor 10,000 kids. That could maybe change a whole province. And what if in doing all of that, we became such a beacon of hope to the east side and beyond that people who don't know Jesus would be busting down our doors because they, would, they wanted to know what is going on on the corner of Bellevue Way and 17th that is making those people so happy. And they're going to want to be a part of it. And, and what if we became such a beacon of hope to the east side that if we were to even think of shutting our doors, the Bellevue City Council would go into paroxysms of despair at the mere thought of it. And they would come to us and they would beg us and plead with us, please don't go, please don't leave. What do you need? Do you need a new parking structure? We'll build it for you. <laughs> Boy, then we'd know there was a Jesus, wouldn't we? You see, this is Jesus' revolution. Most revolutions begin on the bottom when people get so mad that they violently rebel against the people on the top. Jesus' revolution is the reverse. It's when the rich and the powerful, moved by his grace to acts of mercy and compassion, reach out to the world. And that changes the world, and that builds his kingdom. And that's why whatever we do, we do it in the name of Jesus. Whatever we do, we do it in the name of Jesus. It grieves me that churches fall into one of two camps. You know, you have churches who are feeding and clothing the poor, but they never mention Jesus, which leaves their bodies fed, but their souls starving. And then you have the reverse. Both are plastic versions of Jesus. The real Jesus calls us to do both. And when we do, you know what we get? We get to see that God is real. We get to see God at work. In the passage we, we read from Isaiah, the people are complaining that they call on God, but they don't experience him. In other words, their theology is right, their worship is beautiful, but they don't see God. And God says, if you serve the poor, you'll see me. And Jesus later echoes that when he says, if you do it even to the least of these, you've done it to me. And I don't think by that Jesus means that the poor are Jesus. There's only one Jesus. I think what he means is when we serve the poor, we see him. When I was doing college ministry, I was working with a student named Jake who was struggling in his faith because God just seemed distant and unreal to him. And I said to Jake, you know what? God becomes real to us only when we serve him. So Jake organized a blanket drive in our church. And even though he was a college student, he stood up in front of a congregation of 5,000 people and asked for blankets and sweaters and socks. And he ended up, he got hundreds of articles of clothing and $1,000 in cash. And then he got a bunch of college students to go up to San Francisco and hand them out. Well, they went up on this cold, rainy day and they passed out, in, they went in pairs and they passed out socks and sweaters and all kinds of stuff. And after they'd given everything away, Jake and his partner were walking back to the car and they ran into a homeless man. And the guy was wet and just soaked to the bone and cold and his pants were falling off because he didn't have a belt. And the homeless man went up to him and, and he said to, to Jake and his partner, he said, 
do you guys have a belt? And, and they said, no, we've given everything away. But then Jake's partner said, wait, wait a minute. And he kneels down in the rain and he takes off his own belt and he starts putting it around the waist of the homeless man. And as he does that, Jake pulls out his Bible and starts reading from John chapter 14, where Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I, would I have told you? And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, won't I come back and bring you to be with me? And by the time Jake got to the end of that passage, both he and the other student were just sobbing. But what I remember most is that when Jake finally caught up with me, I, I remember the look on his face. And he, he, he caught up with me and said, Scott, Scott, he's real. And I said, who's real, Jake? And he said, Jesus. And I said, I know he's real, Jake. He goes, no, no, not like that. He's really real. I saw him work today. And I don't know what Moses' face must have looked like when he came down off Mount Sinai after talking with God, but I think it must have looked a little bit like Jake's face looked that day. When we serve the poor, we experience Jesus. Look at it this way. On December 24th in the year 1 A.D., if you had wanted to see God, where would you have gone? To Caesar's palace? To Herod's house? To the temple? Actually, the best view of God that day was on display in a makeshift homeless shelter housing a poor Jewish carpenter who was barely living above the poverty line whose teenage wife just gave birth to their first son. Because that's where God longs to be. Wherever there is poverty or pain or disease or brokenness or despair or heartache, God enters into those places and begins to redeem them. And if we want to see him work, we have to join in those broken places and watch him make a difference. And then as Isaiah says, our light will break forth like the dawn and our faith will be renewed and God's kingdom will come and his will will get done and earth will look a lot more like heaven. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us because he has anointed us to preach good news to the poor. He has sent us to proclaim release to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of God's favor to all people. Lord Jesus, what a privilege that is to share with you in that task. Lord, I confess that I don't always want to do it. But I would ask that you give us all courage and compassion to serve others. Lord, teach us how to do that. Here we are. Lord, send us, and we promise that we will hold your people in our hearts. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.